We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Zot Talk Radio, the world from people who think. Hello and welcome to all our listeners. Your hosts are myself, Neil Bradley, my co-host Joe Quinn, and Jason Martin's here with us. Welcome, guys. Hi. We're very lucky to be joined tonight by Pierre Lescodon. Hello. Arkadius Yajic. Arkadius Yajic. Arkadius. Did I pronounce that right? Ark. No. Ark. But anyway. Who we know is Ark. So, um, the topic for tonight's show... Well, it's we're back onto science again, and this time we're going to be looking at the hard sciences in general. And we think that with having Pierre and Ark here, they'll have stories to tell us of their experiences in uh, scientific and technological fields. Laura, of course, has written about the problem of corruption in science, about it being a fundamental problem. In fact, she, I think she's written that it is possibly the root problem of all of humanity's problems at this point in history. And one of the things that she said is that scientists today appear to show little interest in truth, and truth should be fundamental to science. Um, now, this isn't just a moral position to take, because the truth matters. It matters when problems that are dealt with are dealt with incorrectly and that leads to more problems and more problems build one on top of the other and eventually that can well that would possibly lead to some kind of evolutionary cul-de-sac humanity can only take on so many mistakes before it's game over so science is important um i think yeah just by way i would open go ahead just by way of an introduction for Arc, uh, just so our listeners know, Arc is a theoretical physicist of many years. Um, he has over 80 papers, uh, rather 90 papers published in top scientific journals. And Pierre uh, has quite a few years, I'll not say quite, I'll not exactly say exactly how many, but has quite a few years. Work, okay, 11, there you go. 11 years working in the uh, top scientific research institute in France. So um, is that is that okay, Pierre? As a yeah, well, description well, Pierre, of your, of your I'm background. I'm not a scientist. You're not a scientist. I don't have a PhD. I have uh, two masters: a master in engineering and an MBA, master in okay. administration. But I work and I manage all uh, organization on a good research campus in France. So okay. Anyway, welcome, Arc. Welcome, but if we uh, talk about truth. Yes. I must correct what you said. What Neil said? No, what you said, because oh. you said that I have this paper in a top scientific journal. Some of them are in top, but some are in very obscure. Well, we'll be talking about yes, we'll be talking about the the definition of of top scientific journals and and why some t- scientific journals are top and why some aren't 
and what it means to be top. Um, but if any of our listeners have any questions for Ark or Pierre or anybody, um, Jason's here as well, of course, so he, he can be asked questions. He he likes questions. Um, if anybody has any questions for Ark or Pierre, uh, feel free. Try and keep them on topic, uh, ideally, but if you have to stray off topic, uh, then that's okay as well. Yeah, okay. So. No, no, that's an uncomfortable sound. That's that's me waiting for Neil to continue from where I interrupted him. Well, um, by, by way of introduction, I mean, what we've seen in past shows is the, the, the fruits of science, the research, the hard work, the, the, the results, the results of the research invariably end up uh, serving destructive ends. It's really, when you when you look at it, it's tragic because science could, does have the potential to do so much good for people, for planet. In all fairness, I think, you know, most ideological systems in science is, is very much an ideological system, in my opinion. I don't know what Art thinks about that. Maybe he has some, some input. But, I mean, most ideological systems can be good and they can help you to find truth. And uh, they can be used to sort of suppress it, you know, and it uh, has a lot to do with the people involved and what kinds of people are involved and uh, how little information there seems to be out there, objective information about the types of people that are moving around in the administrative sectors and the uh, the upper echelons of, of various different ideological institutions, science and academia being one, of course, you know. Yeah, absolutely. We've talked about that in past shows about the essentially what we're we usually get get onto is psychopaths and the psychopathic mindset. But obviously, we're talking just about greed and you know, yeah, the I mean, human condition. I uh, think people underestimate you know how many sort of Judas Iscariots that kind of are out there. People who will for thirty pieces of silver just you know sell just about anyone down the river, even mm-hmm. a little kid with leukemia. You know, mm-hmm. um, are those people psychopaths? I don't know, maybe, but I think a lot of them is just you know. This uh, this unenlightened self interest yeah. of of people today. Absolutely, any area of human endeavor can be uh, corrupted, not just science, and has been corrupted uh, by people. Um, but that's not really that that forms part of the the, the topic of our, our show tonight. But um, yeah, science, the hard sciences, um, obviously can be and have been equally corrupted as. As we talked about in previous shows, as medicine and psychiatry, they're all they're science. It's all science based, and um, <clears throat> it's basically research. Science is basically research into the into the all and everything of life, and 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 what uh, what the world around us is about, and trying to to, to understand it uh, to the benefit for the benefit of humanity, and that's where it becomes corrupted, because there's people in positions of power who. Are not really interested in benefiting humanity, but they're rather interested in benefiting themselves. And maybe here we reach one of the most fundamental paradox of science, of modern science. On one side, uh, the objective of science would be to discover and share truth, but on the other side, it's controlled by elites that don't want the truth to be discovered and to be shared because. The foundation of their power is based on lie. 
Uh, one example is the man-made global warming, and we probably address that more uh, extensively later. But this uh, myth of man-made global warming versus the reality, which is a cosmically induced global cooling, man-made global warming maintains the illusion that the powers to be have control and are able to protect the population against uh, potential threats because the sole source of legitimacy of the elites is this belief held by the population that the elites are able to protect them. Even more than that, blaming it man-made, you know, global warming, man-made climate change, is this whole idea of the uh, the failure to admit that anything outside of the planet Earth could be causing it type of thing. It's sort of like it, 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 it edits the situation to make it seem like man is a big enough concern for the universe that, you know, that we're going to destroy the planet instead of the planet's going to destroy us at some point. I mean, it's just kind of like uh, more hubris in a certain sense. One of the one of the main aspects today, and one of the main ways today in which uh, scientific research uh, reaches the population or reaches the people, scientific findings, the studies of of scientists or the research of scientists is through uh, scientific journals. As Ark mentioned, he's published in ninety. Some of them top. Some of them maybe not so top. Um, and that definition of top journal is obviously has a lot to do with uh, uh, influence and money, uh, political influence as well. Um, <clears throat> there was a, an article I was reading just uh, today. It's from February 2010. And it was published in the BBC uh, on the BBC News website, um, and it was about the corruption of science. Um, and there's a quote here from um, Peter Lawrence, who is an em emeritus professor at the University of Cambridge, um, who says that um, he talks about scientific journals and journal research. Uh, and him, he commented on the fact that funding bodies now award grants almost exclusively to researchers who have published in a handful of top scientific journals. According to this emeritus professor at Cambridge, it's this new accounting mentality that's corrupting the scientific process. He says that awarding grants was never a very accurate process in the past, but it was done by people reading the research papers and determining whether it contained sparks of originality and quality of rigor and argument. He says now, in the modern day, in, in the last maybe 10 years, now that, now that aim has been more or less abandoned, what counts now is not the quality or rigor of the research or the argument or the originality of the research uh, that could benefit people and, and move scientific understanding f uh, forward. What counts now is how often the research is cited or mentioned by other researchers in their publications. This is supposed to be a reflection of how influential a piece of research has been, but many outside the grant awarding system regard it as a crude measure. So, Ark, that's my first question for you. The the comments by this. Oh, I this completely, I completely agree. Have you any personal experience of of this? Well, uh, not necessarily. Uh, I I think I took uh, preventive steps. That is, if I had a paper that was 
original. Uh, no, I had some experiences. I tried to publish some uh, original paper in uh, top journals. Well, I have argued with the referees, the papers have been rejected. Then after some time, of course, uh, I published them uh, somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And uh, then they were quoted, and uh, of course the referees of the top journal were completely wrong. They didn't understand completely. They, uh, but uh, I didn't want to fight because it's a waste of time. Because you won't fighting. win. Yeah. Well. Uh, yeah, I could, uh, but it would take too much energy. I prefer to spend my energy on something else. Mm-hmm. I publish my paper somewhere else. And I know that after 10 years or 15, uh, someone will discover them and uh, someone will, will probably some, someone will copy and publish and his own paper. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's normally happens. It's, it's almost, it, it seems to me, I mean, I'm, I've read a little bit, I've listened to you talk about it, um, the whole process, and it seems almost very childish to me the way that they act, you know. I mean, I mean people regard scientists as, as being... You know the height of uh, maturity yeah. and, and upstanding and up, upstanding members of the community, but well, there's not an awful lot of. If you are among children, you should behave like a child, right? Yeah, and then have a good time. But a good time, but to the to the detriment of 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 good research and and and, um, and the publication of no the, of useful the, research. You see, the problem, the main problem is that. Uh, Scientists, young scientists, they study and they hope that they will just, that's looking for truth is what is what science is doing. But after they graduate, after they start working on their PhDs, then they find out that this is not for, the, the, for what they are will be paid for. You know, they will not be paid by, uh, for finding truth, such and that. Uh, but they will be paid for the number of papers uh, published in some journals, and then they fight for grants, and of course uh, they will get grants, because grants are important, because once you get grants, you can uh, get an equipment, you can go to conferences, uh, uh-huh. you know, you, 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 you can get books. Uh, you can work. Uh, oh well, uh, uh, but the main thing is that you can travel because yeah. grounds are mostly spent on traveling and on t- uh, uh, hiring uh, uh, students to do a technical job for you. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you spend all, all your times. If you have a grant, you pay PhDs, and PhD will work for you, right? So you need this grant. But to get grant, you are not supposed to look for the truth, but you are supposed to look for what problems are now uh, 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 popular so that if I work on this, I will get a grant. Yeah. Okay. And it doesn't matter how stupid is this problem. I mean, after 10 years, it can be completely abandoned, right? But nowadays, this is a fashion. And if you, if you use right words in your application, you'll get grants. Okay. Uh, it shows the, this article from the BBC shows how insane the system is and how it works in a closed full circle. Actually, what really matters for the notoriety of a scientist is not how close he goes to the truth, is uh, how many papers he publishes in top journals and how many times he's quoted. 
<clears throat> so we're not talking about being true here. We're talking about being influential, as was mentioned in the article, if I correctly remember. Once you've had your paper in nature or in science, and you quoted 100 times, for example, about global warming, because a lot of people are getting funding about global warming, and they need data to support their own theories supporting the dominant paradigm. So once you reach this uh, status, you know, big paper in a big journal with a lot of quotes, then you're going to have access to grants. Then you're going to get more resources, PhD students, postdocs, equipment, trips, whatever, that will give you the means to publish much more papers in this direction. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to be published even more. And you see how it goes full circle, starting from a actually a political orientation because at the very top, the amounts of money available for this topic or that topic are decided by a ministry of research that depends on prime minister. It's political. Well, I mean, it's, it's a lot like, you know, Google and the way that they rank pages by who's referencing it. And it's a popularity contest. And uh, that's the kind of system that benefits the psychopath the most because of their glibness and shallowness and chattiness, they go from place to place and talk people up and they get very popular. So that kind of system, the popularity system with the halo effect and all this stuff, that mm. that works for them. It doesn't work really for, for, you know, hardcore scientists because they're too busy doing work to be social. Mm. Well, I would add a little bit as an insider to what you said, Pierre. The, the, the story, uh, as far as I see it, is... The following, okay, once you have grants, you go to conferences, you meet people, okay, then you talk to the people, oh, you see, I have this paper, I will quote you, uh, yeah. and in the meantime, will you quote me, you know, and so on, and, and then the more you meet people at, in the conferences, the more you are being quoted, you see, and they are quoted, so you quote uh, those whom you know, mm -hmm. and they quote you. Mm -hmm. and, and that works if you're close enough to the main para paradigm. But this system is particularly detrimental in science because science is based on innovation, change of paradigm. And if notoriety of scientists is based on how often they're quoted, it means that the outsiders, the ones who might have new ideas, will not be quoted mm -hmm. because their ideas are so different and so threatening to the Mainstream uh, scientists, mainstream that defend no, the no, mainstream no, no, no. paradigm. But this is not a problem. If the outsider really care for truth, then even if he, he will not be quoted, his paper and his idea will be stolen, and the <laughs> truth will be known. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> well, if the ideas are not threatening to the power that be, to the established order, well, like yeah, the Tesla and that's rare. That's rare. Yeah. Well, I have an example, and maybe we, we can talk, uh, and uh, you can say what, what you think about it. Uh, so it happened in, uh, in southern France about 10 years ago, and I was managing this uh, technology transfer organization. So basically, we're helping scientists with good ideas or less good ideas to transform those ideas in R&D and finally in innovation, products, business. Um, so there was this uh, brilliant biologist had an idea, he had discovered a molecule that seemed to work against uh, AIDS, HIV. Okay, there's a lot of controversy about uh, 
HIV and AIDS and the proof that uh, this virus triggers the death that are attributed to HIV is uh, controversial and we could make a whole show about it. So let's, uh, but let's go straight to the story. So this guy had a good, um, a very good idea. And uh, a world scale test of the best molecules, therapeutic molecules against HIV got tested. The RIVAC trials. The 10 best international teams, research teams in the world, were selected and had to give their molecule and they were going to be tested on groups of monkeys. Six monkeys of each, Because monkeys developed an HIV virus that is very similar to the one in humans. Okay. <clears throat> so, out of the 10 teams, all the monkey dies, died within the two weeks after the injection of the therapeutic or so-called therapeutic molecule. Except for one team, the team of this uh, French scientist, all the monkeys, despite the inoculation of the SHIV, the simian HIV virus, all the monkeys survived. He had obviously a very promising molecule. So following those results, um, the NRS, uh, the equivalent of NIH in France, ordered to burn all, to kill and burn all the monkeys because there had been a flow, allegedly, in the scientific process. So there was no proof of the effectiveness of the molecule. Then GlaxoSmithKline gave the world award to this scientist, this, friend, this French uh, scientist. World award, up to this point, only American scientists got the award. So it was a big award, a lot of money, you know? And at the same time, they proposed a deal. Okay, we give you this amount of money and we're going to develop your molecule, go through the clinical trials. So that's $500 million put on the table. We get the FDA agreement and we develop your vaccine. It was a preventive and curative vaccine. And then uh, the scientist was really happy. He had an award, he got money, and he just had to wait. And he waited, and he waited. He waited years and years to finally realize he had been screwed and Glasgow Smith-Klein had bought his molecule to bury it because it was not profitable. It was a small peptide, uh, 100 pairs of protein, 100 pairs, easy to manufacture. You administer it once and you prevent uh, AIDS and you cure AIDS. Meanwhile, GlaxoSmithKline and others are making billions with treat therapy and now cardiac therapy, where basically I think a AIDS patient, they swallow something like 30 pills a day. So they are literally cash cows. It was not profitable. And that was why I was saying sometimes if the scientists go too close to an uncomfortable truth, so his truth won't be shared. Well, I agree, but uh, I will repeat, this is real. Well, there's... Um, there, there are... Can I call them maverick, maverick scientists who are who have complained about this uh, process, modern science and the process to, get, to getting research published and the peer review process and everything. And um, one of them, his name is um, J. Morgan Herndon, who we have published on, on SOT.net, has said that um, 
uh, he's, t- he's talking about the National Science Foundation that's in the US. Uh, he says that the, that the consequence of this new modern peer review process has been that, uh, generally speaking, uh, trivial projects are proposed, often with non-scientific end results, such as the widespread practice of making models based on assumptions instead of making discoveries. Uh, the he says further, the proposal evaluation is often a guise to engage in exclusionary and ethically questionable anti-competitive practices. Moreover, bureaucrat program managers decide which projects are suitable for the programs that they design. There is no incentive to make important discoveries or to challenge existing ideas. Quite the contrary. Have you found our do you think that's a true, uh, an accurate statement that there is no incentive to make important discoveries or challenge existing ideas? Yeah, there is no incentive. But on the other hand, there are, uh, to make a career in science is not so difficult, but because it is easy to decode uh, how you have to write your papers in order that they will be published in top journals, and if your goal is to 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 make a career and probably it is your goal because you have to feed your family after all right so uh it's uh, if you are not publishing a lot it means you don't know how to decode the system so you are not such a good scientist so you're saying it's possible you're saying it's actually possible to get um you know kind of groundbreaking or new research that goes against the system. I sense that it is, is no. You should, if you want to make a career, you never go against the system. But what about truth? Well, does truth fall? That was long ago, hundred years ago. Scientists cared about truth, and but even then, uh, if someone was finding the truth that was unpopular. There are many examples of scientists that were hiding their research in the in the drawers in the mm. drawers of their desk because they thought world is not yet ready for this discovery. Mm. And, and there was a change. There was a major change over the Second World War. Before Second World War, you had space for independent researchers that could get their work public, that could share their ideas, and that could conduct their research. And then research started to be uh, to become an institution institutionalized with uh, political control of the funding political control of the work position political control of the publication and uh, science and scientists indirectly became the tool to further some political ideologies well of course and the ideology uh, the political ideology has for quite a long time, being control of the population, um, and science is certainly one area, perhaps the main area where uh, people can be provided with understanding and information about the world around them that may, in some way, make them less controllable, more free, perhaps, and obviously, therefore, people in positions of political power who want to make sure that people remain controlled have decided that they need to keep a tight control over scientific discoveries and what gets released uh, by well, by scientific research. Well, I don't think that they, people should get the impression that there are these this vast amount of 
groundbreaking scientific discoveries that would completely change your life, like immortality and like. Pierre was uh, insinuating like the cure to disease, cure to cancer, cure to AIDS and stuff. This, mm. These things are being suppressed. That's not, that's not necessarily the case. Like Ark was saying, it's actually rare when there seems to be a real concerted effort to suppress some new discovery. I mean, most of it's just really small stuff that just makes some guy who's a big hoodoo look a bit like a ponce because he forgot to carry a couple no, of No, but you see, these rare cases, if they would not be uh, suppressed, they would be enough to make a, a big technological and scientific jumps. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, one of the reasons why during, uh, say, 100 years, we do not have real uh, uh, breakthrough in physics, you see, is that uh, whatever... Uh, can be of real value is taken over by military and by whoever, by, by the industry, and it's being suppressed, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the normal science that uh, just goes uh, small steps by steps, uh, usually in the uh, uh, wrong direction, uh, it works well. But uh, uh, I would add to, to something to what you said, Joe, that uh, you said uh, that before the Second World War, it was uh, a little bit better, and then mm -hmm. uh, it's not exactly that. Even after the Second World War, uh, there was uh, much more freedom in science, but then the, the, what was really bad came from the U.S., and this is the centralization, because... Uh, when uh, during my scientific career at the very beginning, where there was no system of grants, the money was distributed locally. That is, university was getting whatever funds, mm -hmm. and then within the university, when people know each other, okay, it was decided. Oh, this guy is promising. We give him the grant. You know, mm -hmm. let him uh, have a seminar. We listen to him, oh yeah, that's, uh, we, we decide, okay. Mm -hmm. So his professor or, you know, the department mm -hmm. decided, you get the grant, okay, and so on. But after that uh, came this centralization of grants, where there is a body somewhere, you know, Usually. In, the, in the capital of your country, mm -hmm. or even uh, it's high up and far away, high, yeah, European, European society or mm -hmm. whatever you know, or or, or world institution, mm -hmm. uh, they don't know you, and they don't have time to 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 to, to learn about you. Mm -hmm. So what they do, they look okay. This number of papers, this number of quotation. This uh, index is uh, this number. Okay, yeah, that's fine. And moreover, he's supported by so-and-so uh, uh, who has a position there and who is a member of our team. Okay, mm -hmm. so certainly he gets a grant, right? Mm -hmm. And that's it. It doesn't matter, you know, how bright or how promising so you are. Do you think that was uh, done deliberately in terms of trying to control the uh, allocation of grants so that there could be a control on the type of research done? No, I don't think it was deliberate. Certainly because of of uh, United States was a very rich country, right? Mm. 
for whatever reason for whatever reason for whatever reason okay uh, the science and they were uh, after the second world war they were able to take all the best scientists from all over the world germany you know, germany and okay whatever okay so the science was making big steps there after the Second World War. And mm. they didn't suffer because of the war so much as the rest of the world, right? Well, that's... So they were making big, big steps. So other countries were looking, oh, we want to uh, not to be worse. What is it there in the U.S. that is wrong? We should take their system. Mm. And of course, after the Second World War, you had the Cold War. So right. it was essentially the U.S. with all of this money to, to allocate towards scientific research and to scientists. It was all focused on – they were on a war footing. They were, on, they were in, a, in wartime. Essentially. Yeah, and also so, the, the, the Soviet Union at the time was, was also in the, the Cold War. But, but there was a big scientific progress in Soviet Union as well. They had fantastic scientists. Mm. And but, they are making, but it all stopped, of course, after everything was uh, privatized. Mm-hmm. And so today, uh, uh, Russian science is a, is a disaster. One can wonder, you know, after the Second World War, Operation Paperclip brought to the U.S. 1,500 1, German, top German scientists. And um, until the Second World War, during the 19th century, beginning of 20th century, you had a, a series of major breakthroughs, scientific breakthroughs. And all of a sudden, it started to to go down. And uh, meanwhile, you had this infusion of 1,500 German scientists and this emergence of the military-industrial complex and uh, development of secrecy. Mm-hmm. So you can wonder to what extent uh, appeared a two-speed research, a public research open, which doesn't seem to evolve very fast, and a secret um, research that achieve results, but mm-hmm. the results are not available for the benefits of the population. It's uh, mm-hmm. hidden behind doors. And just on the, on the on the on the point, Jason, you made a little while ago, but that as Arkad said, uh, it's very rare that there's some kind of a major discovery that's suppressed. I would kind of tend to think that that the reason that such discoveries are rare is because of the control system. Do you know what I mean? Or at the very least, if you know there is a, a system that that makes sure that or tries to make sure that certain research goes in certain directions, and if that was more open, there may be little discoveries that would lead have knock-on effects. You know, it would spread if it was an open system. Basically, you may eventually have a a knock-on effect type of thing where one, one type of research, one little discovery would lead to another, lead to another. You know, so it's not just one person has to come up with the answer to all and everything, but that if all scientists were free to follow the research that they that they wanted to and if they were kind of benevolently inclined in terms of trying to find uh, answers to, to social problems or human problems that big research or big, big discoveries could eventually come out of that but that doesn't happen because I don't know I think that that's a naive perspective to have on the situation it's kind of still goes into the idea that um, uh, if science were allowed to it could do no do no wrong, or if science were allowed to, it could solve all these things, it could discover anything in the universe, and I don't necessarily have that much faith in science to think that there's going to be an, an endless number of discoveries if the scientific method were just allowed to do what it is intended to do. 
um I think that that's a lot of a lot of faith to have in it, which I don't have. You know, I mean, of course, Ark may disagree with me. I know he, he and I sometimes do have disagreements on the ideological aspects of science, and I'm uh, I'm kind of a little bit anti-science most of the time. But what I was trying to get at was not so much that there couldn't be lots of breakthroughs. Obviously, yeah, there could. I mean, there could be a new quantum theory or a new theory of relativity that isn't retarded type of thing. Um, that's that's fine. Yeah, that could happen. I don't know. But the point I was trying to make was that uh, a lot of what's wrong with science uh, has absolutely nothing to do with the suppression of, you know, paradigm-shifting discoveries, and has everything to do with the uh, the guy who builds a better microchip to navigate the bombs, and he doesn't have any obstructions in his way, or the you know the guy who comes up with a new chemical weapon for the military. Um, those types of people, those scientific discoveries, which obviously don't meet with any opposition, but are actually really quite bad, you know. I mean, the the guy who's designing horrible chemical weapons and the guy who's just, you know, designing new, more efficient uh, armor-piercing rounds, I mean, it's just, you know, I mean, that kind of stuff, that science, the, the guys who design that kind of stuff are really, in a certain sense, uh, being a little bit irresponsible a lot of the times, I think. That's my opinion. Yeah, so basically what you're saying is that it's it's controlled in a certain direction. It's pushed towards the war uh, development of weapons of war that that's where scientific research is is that's where the funding goes right. from the, the government of science is not so much that they suppress invention it's that uh they they sort of immorally and unethically push forward certain types of inventions yeah uh, well that's what, that's basically what I'm saying so if it, like yeah. I, like I said so if it was free and open for scientists to follow if they had some benevolent intentions that certain Certain uh, discoveries could be made that would be, you know, would be very beneficial and could be groundbreaking type of things. So, I don't think it's naive to think that. I think what you just said just bears out the point that I made that actually, if it was free and open, it's it not mutually it's not mutually exclusive. I think uh, the leaders, the powers that be, they push towards a certain direction, destructive, at worst, at best, useless, and also they prevent. The rare slips that occur, there's not so many uh, slips because the system is so insidious and pervasive that most scientists self-censor themselves. They know the game. They know you cannot go behind this line. They know here you get the funding. Here you get the carrot, here you get the stick. So they follow where the carrot is. But sometimes there are slips. Uh, concerning uh, some work to Jacques Benveniste is mm-hmm. an interesting yeah. example. Because Jacques Venice, he knew the, the rule, he knew the game. He was uh, one of the top immunologists of his generation. He's the one who discovered the um, plaquelet activation factor, the PATH. <coughs> Brilliant guy, working for INSERM in, uh, in France. And along his studies, very classical studies, mainstream research, everything was all right, big uh, funding. Along his research, he discovered, he started to... Um, to test the impact of B venom on a degranulation of blood. That's one of the consequences of the contact of B venom on blood is this degranulation thing. And he noticed that when you put less and less venom in the blood, there's less and less degranulation, which is logical. But then you reach concentration where statistically there's no more venom in the solution injecting bees. And although there's no more venom, the degranulation reaction still occurs. 
at the level level higher than zero. So he just published that. And it was published in Nature. Big paper, the, the highest impact factor. But a few days after the publication, peer, peer reviewers had nothing to, to to criticize about it. It was uh, all the protocols, scientific protocols had been applied and uh, the results were very interesting. It was very consistent. And then the director of Nature reacted a few days later and said, yeah, no, there's been a mistake. It's a fraud. The data has been cooked. So they asked Benveniste to remove his article, um, to present his apologies. And Benveniste didn't do so. And uh, he replicated the experiment. And he applied the experiment to other cases where there's no more concentration of an effector and still the effect occurs. And that's why people call later the proof of the memory of water. And that was a, that's a very interesting concept. And, uh, but anyway, long story short, Jack Benveniste got no more grant, no more funding from INSERM. He got expelled from his lab and he settled some temporary boxes on the garden in front of his ex-research institute. He got bashed in the medias, scientific medias and mainstream medias. He was called a liar. He was called a fraud. He's been accused to cook the data. And uh, they harassed him so much that they didn't kill him directly. But after 10 years of harassment, he died. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not trying to say that it doesn't happen at all, you know, and I'm not I'm not going against that. I'm just speaking from my understanding that, you know, the way that uh, I, I felt that things were being presented, which is why I said it, is basically that, you know, there's all of these fantastic discoveries that are being suppressed and, you know, that that's what's wrong with the system. And I was just saying that that's a small part of the problem. I mean, obviously, there's these mean bastards, you know, who do that kind of stuff and that kind of thing, which happens in, in all other fields as well. But uh, science kind of has a somewhat more of a moral responsibility. It's like, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And in the sense of science, um, you have a lot of power and that you have a lot of people who don't have a lot of responsibility. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that's the corruption. Sometimes yeah, the, the idea is that because science is so controlled, as we've been talking about, um, the potential for any great discoveries to happen is basically nil. So it's not, as you're saying, it's not that... There's these people all over the world with with um, uh, cures for cancer and you know how to time travel and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but that simply, if that were ever possible, if those things were ever possible, uh, we're never going to find out with the state of the system as it is today. Arky, I have a question for you from a listener. Yes. Uh, it's from Genevieve. She says, would Ark be willing to discuss how the scientist actually seeking truth Get attacked, ridiculed, or worse. Do you have any stories or experience of a scientist who was actually involved in some kind of research and that was who was following the path of truth, just without any considerations for his career or anything like that, but was maybe was didn't understand the the system and how he or she got attacked or ridiculed or suppressed or. Uh, nothing like that comes to my mind right now, I think, but what happens more often that uh, if you find something important and you find some truth, 
but it's not uh, along the mainstream interest, then you are simply being ignored. Uh-huh. This is this is usual. I mean, it uh, it it's not so often that you are get being ridiculed, and if you are being ridiculed, then you know you 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 can fight. But if you are just being ignored, mm-hmm. it's worse than being uh, uh, ridiculed. Yeah. You see? Okay, nobody will quote you. Perhaps someone will steal your idea, rephrase it, publishes his own under different names, uh, changing everything here and there. But, okay, but uh-huh. it, you will be ignored. Yeah. Um, another question from... Um a listener called Pashalis to Ark. Um, let me just get the question here. What part does plasma cosmology play in physics and quantum physics nowadays? Oh, this I don't know. No? No, I know uh, that it's probably something very important and uh, probably someday in the future I will get interested, of course. I was looking here and there. I collected a lot of papers to be read afterwards mm-hmm. when I am not so busy with what I am doing now. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, by the way, uh, just as a side remark to 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 the problem of responsibility of scientists. Uh, I decided that uh, whatever I do, uh, it's going to be completely useless from the practical point of view. Because uh, if I do something that is useful, it can be used for uh, the purpose that I don't want it to be used. Mm. So what is what was my choice? My choice is to do things that will probably be appreciated so far in the future uh, that today uh, they are completely useless. They are completely useless or they would be subverted. Do you mean they would be completely useless, that they're practically I mean, uh, useless? Or yeah, yeah the, the, they, they have no practical, practical application. application. Yeah. No? But, you know, for instance, now I'm working on this uh, quantum fractals, okay? Because I think they are, there will be no application. But not long ago, I di- discovered that, well, I can invent some application. Oh, my God, what should I do? I Should I stop? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and did you? Uh, no, I am still kind of a suspension. You know. Yeah, you're still thinking about it. Yeah, I don't know what to do. In a suspended state. Yeah, probably uh, I will have to phrase what I know in such a way that uh, 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 any possible application will be so hidden and so impossible to find it. Well, that, um, but that's what I mean. That's terrible. That's, I mean, it's a shame. It's no? not just a shame. It's it's a travesty that that someone like yourself can spend so much time with so much talent to um, to investigate something and to come up with ideas and theories about something that could have a pl- practical application for good for 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 the benefit potentially of of people or of life on the planet whatever and you feel like you have to just shut well, up you know there are different kinds of benefits and one kind of benefit is a practical benefit 
And another is aesthetical benefit. I prefer to wear work for the aesthetical, right? What, what? To, to produce something that is beautiful mm -hmm. and you know and give aesthetical pleasure. Mm -hmm. well, what you say is pretty close to what Nikola Tesla was saying. He knew that his discoveries would be used for nefarious purposes, and that's why he apparently he knew how to make this. Uh, particle beams, death rays, and never revealed all the secrets of this discovery because he knew it would be used for nefarious purposes. Well, he, yeah, he, he had a a very direct personal experience of, of the nefarious agenda with... Uh, Chip and Morgan. Yeah, and the development of uh, AC and DC current for the electricity wars. Yeah, the J.P. Morgan buried his project when he saw that he was not cashable. Mm -hmm. He couldn't make money with it. And it's interesting that he died a pauper. Yeah. yeah. Which is unfortunate because he's actually responsible for, for quite a few interesting technologies that we have today. wouldn't have happened without him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wireless communication, AC current. Uh, yeah, I was about to say something. No, I <laughs> lost it. <laughs> Uh, just one point about plasma uh, cosmology, where I'm not an expert in the field, but from what I understand, it's a, it's an elephant in the lab, not in the room, that is uh, thoroughly ignored and systematically ignored. Plasma cosmology started with uh, Birkland and uh, Anne Salfen, both got a Nobel Prize, actually. And uh, the state of matter, plasma, is 99 of the matter in the universe. Plasma, unlike the traditional cosmology, is scalable, so you can test it in uh, labs, in experiments, and there are many, many results. And you barely hear about plasma cosmology. When you hear about it, usually it's uh, ridiculed as uh, fantasy thinking, as junk sci science. Although, well, I'm not expert enough to say that it's true, but it fits very well a lot of observation that traditional cosmology cannot explain at all. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I said that I know nothing about plasma cosmology, right? But uh, was it the truth? But uh, <laughs> from what I know, I would not uh, put it into the subject of corruption of science. It is just standard inertia of science. The the because. Uh, if you look what, during the last 10 years, plasma cosmology is making its way to the conferences, to the journals, to the uh, uh, monographs. I mean, there is, with each year, there is more and more uh, uh, papers devoted to this. So sure. it's, just, uh, it's just the inertia. Um, I want to go back to something that we were discussing before about the use of breakthrough technologies for, for weapons in particular. It's, it's obviously you end up with weapons and we can, you know, you can blame the system as a whole and, and, and that's true. Well, we think it's true. But before that, the breakthrough, the research that, uh, the eventual weapon is built on, that was never intended for for ultimately being weaponized. So you've got people working in labs who do make 
breakthroughs, um, whether it was use, you know using use of physics for developing laser laser technology, or uh, even before that, I mean, they, they have no idea what the ultimate application will be. Yeah, it's 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 not so much that something is well. There are cases where things are suppressed, but as Ark said, that's rare. It's that the research, what happens to it next, it becomes vectored or yeah, uh, it's uh, exactly it's. Um, I don't know in the U.S., but in France, there is a law that states that any discovery, any patent, for every patent, the military have a priority on the patent. Oh, it's exactly it's the same in the U.S. Yeah. Okay, and there is a there's an example that illustrates what you were saying, and show that on every scientist's head there is this Damocles sword hovering. There was this guy who invented the fins, you know, for swimming with a, a kind of pivot at the level of the ankle and a support at the level of the of the leg and increased the effectiveness of uh, fins in water by uh, 50%, more effective uh, mechanically speaking. And this guy was, uh, was doing spearfishing in Marseille and I wanted to develop that for spearfishers and people who were swimming just to be more effective, to go deeper and to have more fun and he was a nice guy, benevolent guy, and he deposited the patent, and the military printed it for military applications. You mean the military so, grabbed it? Yeah. So the a man who was well intentioned, who made a interesting discovery, who wanted to benefit humanity at a small level, a fin, ended up seeing his discovery years of effort used by uh, navy troops sealed. Navy SEALs for nefarious purposes. And was that never released then to the public? I don't know. If, the, if they preempt, if they grab the patent, the patent falls within the military sphere and uh, the military sphere acquires the exclusivity on the patent. So you, as a civil uh, industrialist, you cannot use the patent or you have to pay rights to the military, but usually military doesn't want to share the technology, so they don't even give rights for developing the technology. They are exclusive exploitation rights of the preempted technology. Yeah, but this is more technology, not science. But uh, I wanted to add something to, 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 to what was said before. We were talking about weapons, and usually when it's talk about weapons, we, we think about oh, bombs or missiles or whatever, teasers or whatever. Thing. But nowadays, uh, I think uh, knowledge, information is also a weapon. Secrecy is a weapon. Way to break secrecy is a weapon. Way to make things secret is a weapon. So it all extended from the pure material world to the world of uh, generally uh, information information uh, can be used or disinformation is nowadays used as a weapon more efficiently than bombs. Yeah, and uh, ironically it's the, the breach of the secrecy within the IPPC, the, the panel for but climate change, when they got all those emails, they stole these emails that were confidential, that allowed to reveal how data were cooked, mm -hmm. how manipulation occurred around all these uh, global warming scams. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, that, that's a very good point, Ark, that it's uh, the, real, the real weapon is 
in 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 science these days is is secrecy and uh keeping data uh secret uh not necessarily even groundbreaking discoveries but just keeping data simple data secret like as Pierre just mentioned the uh the international panel the UN international panel for climate change um maybe we can talk a little bit a bit about that about the whole global warming business because that did involve a lot of scientists uh, and corruption in science and um I mean we can only we can only speculate because there's no there's no smoking gun proof to a large extent on um uh on, on whether or not people were doing it consciously um although there is the, the reference to hiding the decline hiding certain data data that the planet was not warming that it was in fact cooling um but in terms of any how that whole mechanism worked behind the scenes you know were people being paid off were people being blackmailed that kind of thing we don't know the specific reason why but we do know as a result of this exposure of this attempted secrecy that that the science is uh, science says exactly the opposite of what the the governments and the UN have been saying. Well, I mean, I'm, on the topic, I, I kind of wanted to say something that does link to that. It's um, when you think about the uh, the technological problem, <clears throat> kind of like the uh, the mining shaft gap from uh, Doctor Strangelove, uh, the sort of sort of like you know uh, military escalation of power. If we don't develop the weapon, the other guy will. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, in, in, in in all fields of science, it is kind of like that. It's like if we don't develop and exploit this particular thing or take control of this particular thing, you know, some other country will type of thing. And uh, it's a really actually an insoluble problem almost when you think about it because it is kind of true. I mean, if if you know the American government doesn't have it, it really will be some other government. That that is a fair estimation of what will happen. Um, and the truth of the matter is, is the only way to to keep science clean and honest is for average people to uh, to be all up in their business constantly, all the time. That would be the only way for it to happen. Otherwise, it has to work the way it is, which is basically it has to be suppressed and controlled. It's, and the problem is, is the responsibility of the average citizen. People never take responsibility for their culture, their civilization, their society. They don't do anything to keep it clean in a certain sense. They don't do any work for it. They they want the centralized body to just make sure that it's not too bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, in a certain sense, you know, like what happened with the whole climate gate thing. I mean, if you know, people really took scientists to task in a very public way throughout the entire society, then of course those types of things wouldn't be the way that it was done, mm-hmm. and governments and scientific institutions wouldn't be able to get away with it. Um, but because people are lazy and disinterested and self-interested and they're there playing their Angry Birds and Facebooking and Farmvilleing uh, all the time. And that is kind of – there's a concerted effort like we were talking about with the whole psychoanalysis thing the other day mm-hmm. to to get people just sort of chasing around chasing their, their desires, tails. chasing their tails type of thing to keep them from stopping for a minute and just you know smacking a scientist when he does something stupid. Mm-hmm. And so – Well, the whole climate thing – uh, climate change or global warming, as it used to be called, I think pretty much most people have changed into climate change these days, but we're still with an emphasis on human-based CO2. Um, you know, that that became, even even the people who, who are playing Angry Birds and dissociating and stuff, um, they're, look, they're looking outside the window and wondering 
where's the global warming? You know, I mean, even even the average person who, as you say, is disinterested completely, the whole idea of global warming has, has fallen foul of Mother Nature, who has provided, you know, especially for the Northern Hemisphere over the past four or five years, you know, extremely cold weather and lots of snow. And I mean, it's almost like I'd like to think that, you know, that was just like a, a slap up the side side the head by Mother Nature to these, these liars and disinformation artists, you know, because even the average person was going, hang on a minute, look, even just on a basic level, they were saying, global warming, snow, well, how does that, what, what how happened, does that die? Well, what they did was they adapted yeah. and they said that man-made global warming could bring freezing weather and they had explanations and data and models to show how this was also part of the same I think it's it's like what Ark is saying about the inertia. The the global warming is like thirty years old now, mm-hmm. this 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 theory, you want to call it that. And there's a kind of inertia behind it. And no, no matter how much evidence the country emerges, mm-hmm. it, there's so much money it's like it's just a snowball that's turned into a giant mm-hmm. snow mountain and it's immovable. Mm-hmm. Um but they have focused and still do focus on the idea of warming. I mean, because they talk about CO2 in the atmosphere causing a warming. It's a greenhouse gas. It causes warming of the planet. I mean, they still come back to that. Al Gore with his giant uh, screen and his stepladder. Man, bear, pig. Man, bear, pig, Gore. Um, You know, he's up there showing how CO2, man-made CO2, causes warming. You know, he's not talking about cooling. Even though the Bilderbergs two years ago, had global cooling on their agenda. But um, just for some data, I mean, it's totally ridiculous. This is really a ridiculous area where, where the twisting of the information and the deliberate corruption of scientific research. I mean, you're not talking about just a tweak here or a tweak there. You're talking about a deliberate ignoring of scientific data and turning it on, turning it on its head for some ulterior motive. I mean, you talk about carbon dioxide as, you know, going to be the death of us all. If we don't do something about it, you know, we all breathe out carbon dioxide. It's less than 0.04% of the Earth's air for a start, carbon dioxide. And human beings contribute 4% of that 0.04% in all of their fossil fuel, etc., etc. You're talking about an infinitesimally small amount of actual gas here. Uh, yet they turn it into... Just remember, you have to pay a tax for that percentage. Well, exactly. That's it's, it's a, And it's not 0.04% tax. It's, it's a $2.7 billion market, the CO2 market. And interestingly, ironically, Al Gore has invested massively in two companies that are heavily involved in a CO2 trade. And the name of the companies. Here are Silver Spring Networks and Generation Investment Management, UK-based company. Yeah, and so human beings prevent, pre, uh, create four. Go ahead. Qui bono? Yeah, human beings create four percent of of the Earth's uh, carbon dioxide, uh, and the total amount is, as I said, zero point zero four percent. So nature, or the planet itself, produces the other ninety six percent of that zero point zero four percent. So calling it pollution, obviously, is nonsense, but people have it in their minds today after this, as Neil mentioned, 30 years propaganda 
and disinformation that people have in their mind that carbon dioxide is a p- pollution, but it's a trace gas. There's it's another, gonna, it's there's another factor is that uh, among the greenhouse inducing gases, CO2 contribute to between 1% and 3%. Water vapor, for example, is a far major greenhouse contributor. Yeah. So we're talking about 3% man-made CO2 mm-hmm. of 1% to 3%. Mm-hmm. So it's about 0.01% mm-hmm. of increased uh, calories. Well, you know, it's really ironic in a way because when people talk about taxes in general, uh, a long time ago probably someone came up with the first idea of, you know, when complaining about taxes that what's next they're going to tax the air we breathe well, to a certain extent they do actually to yeah. a certain extent that's what that's what the whole CO2 because we breathe out CO2 and CO2 is evil and has to be taxed so indirectly you are actually being taxed for the air you breathe well think about like the, the smoking thing it's the same thing it's, it's about the money and it's not about the money of corporations it's about the money the government makes off of taxing cigarettes mm-hmm. I, I think uh, money was one of the objectives of this scam there is also this uh, maintaining the illusion that the elites can protect us, and if the cooling is cosmically induced, they can absolutely do nothing, mm-hmm. and then their legitimacy disappears, and then we know what happens when the elites don't seem legitimate anymore in the eyes of the population. Population revolt. And there is a, a third factor, that's the guilt trip in a Christian Catholic fashion. Human beings, each human being, you, me, gets the finger pointed at him and saying, yeah, you're the one who's responsible for the poor polar bear dying on his uh, melting piece of ice. Well, I would like to make a comment uh, just to keep close to the truth because when we are speaking about this pollution, CO and whatever, uh, uh, you see, uh, I think that part of this uh, direction is good because it's good to have uh, cleaner cars. You imagine, uh, I remember how cars were polluting, uh, say, uh, some 20 years ago mm-hmm. and how it is now. now nowadays, I mean, uh, walking through London, it would kill you if the car would be, you know, the same kind, okay? And then uh, we have this coal business. I, uh, when I was living in the area where uh, you couldn't see the clean sky because, uh, you know, all this smoke from coals, uh, mm-hmm. from the uh, uh, burning coal. I, uh, I, I'm not sure if nuclear energy is better. Uh, that is uh, another problem, but there are other solutions. And it's good that people are getting a war about polluting. I totally agree, and you see mm. how this uh, CO2, man-made CO2, uh, led the good intention of human beings to protect the planet on wrong tracks. Today, if you buy a car, you're going to pay a tax or get a bonus. You get money from the government if you buy a car that generates a low level of CO2. But CO2 emission is not the problem. It's not what is polluting. And result of this taxation based on CO2 emission Mm. It had diesel car, which have a higher efficiency rate, combustion rate, release less CO2. So you get money, 
you don't pay taxes on CO2, but at the same time, diesel cars, diesel engines are the ones that reduce the more toxic particles. Not so, CO2. It, and not CO2. So in the end, cars that get promoted are the ones that are the most pro- polluting. Yeah, it's completely turned on its head, you know. And at the same time as they're complaining about um, pollution from CO2, they're deforesting, you know, large parts parts of the planet. Uh, and in fact, it's trees that are huge kind of scrubbers of of pollution and of of CO2 as well. Uh, from from the atmosphere, you know. So I mean, all of it is totally disingenuous and largely based on lies. Um, and the science behind it, as we've said, is uh, has been totally corrupted because you know we know about Climate Gate in the UK a couple of years ago, and not just on CO two, the UN deliberately omitted ninety thousand reliable measurements of CO two levels over the past one hundred and eighty years, and these reliable measurements of CO2 levels over the past 180 years revealed a natural fluctuation that was up to 40% above current levels. So the whole idea that there's too much CO2 in the atmosphere right now has been shown to be completely bogus. And and that that the heating of the planet is driven by other factors, not by humans, uh, not by their burning of fossil fuels, not by cows, Passing wind. And the same cooking of data, which applies to CO2, as you mentioned, applies to temperature directly. 75% of the temperature of the weather stations that were used for data, for statistics, have been removed. And the 75% stations were located either in rural areas or in mountain ranges. Mm-hmm. Result, they kept 25% of the stations that are located in coastal area and or urban area. And we know that coastal areas and urban areas are, defi- are warmer. Mm-hmm. So that's the way to make reality fit a model. And by the way, the model that was proposed by the IPCC, you know, this hockey stick model that was predicting a strong increase in temperature was released uh, during the first IPCC meeting in 2005, I think, or in 2010, during, no, in uh, 1995 or in 2000. And it was a prediction of uh, the 2000-2015 period. So now we have observation, we have uh, uh, real data, actual data, and the actual data do not fit into the tunnel, the predictive tunnel, which is a compilation of different models. Actually, it's out of it, totally out of it. And while the tunnel is on the increase, shows an increase in temperature, the actual data observation shows decline in temperature. So there might have been a global warming prior to 2000, but all the indicators show that after 2000, temperatures have been globally dropping over the planet. Uh, yeah, well, I was going to say something kind of like a comment, not necessarily directly on that, but on what Joe was saying about the uh, the authorities, the powers that be, and um, their constant need to indoctrinate people into the belief that they are potent in, in our reality, that they have some way of controlling things, that they can fix things, that they can protect you. But if you stop for a minute, step back and think about the signs that are all around you, 
Um, why do they need armed policemen on every corner type of thing? Why do they – why are all the train stations and airports – they give you this excuse like it's to protect you from terrorists, right? But if a terrorist goes in there with a bomb, what is this guy with an M16 going to do against him exactly? He's going to shoot him. The bomb's going to blow up, and it's still going to kill people, right? You know, the, the bombers – supposedly the, 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 the suicide bomber that they've created is there to die, right? So a guy shooting him is not really a problem as long as the bomb goes up for him. I mean that's – you know that's not going to solve anything. They've got all of these, you know, this all this police force, all these police agencies, all these armed people on the street for the express purpose that they realize that their authority is undermined already. I mean, the authority of the powers that be has already been undermined, mm-hmm. and people realize, you know, like Joe was saying, when they look out the window, they say, "Hey, wait a minute, this, this is not matching up," mm-hmm. and they see that they can't be that the powers that be cannot protect you from what's going on in the world. And that's why you see all of this proliferation of you know military technology and drones and this that and the other thing for that. Because they realize they realize that the game's up. The game's the game's almost up. Almost up, yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. Obviously, there's going to be some killing and there's going to be some suppression and some attempts at totalitarian government. But eventually, I mean, you know, if the 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 global cooling situation comes on and there's a and there's an ice age, you know. There's going to be a bunch of you know frozen guys standing on corners with M16s. It's going to be pretty useless, that mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. Okay, right now we're going to go to a commercial break, and we'll be back after these words. Since ancient times, great civilizations have risen and fallen. The biblical plagues and the collapse of the old kingdom of Egypt, the plague of Justinian and the collapse of the Roman Empire, the Black Death that devastated Europe. Could similar catastrophes strike our planet again? Lower Knight Yadchik's latest book, Comets and the Horns of Moses, provides compelling evidence that the course of human history has been defined by extraordinary and devastating cosmic events. Drawing on her extensive study of history, religion, psychology, and physics, Laura uncovers clues hidden in the great myths, ancient astronomy, and the works of the Greek philosophers to unveil the secret knowledge of the ages, cyclical cosmic catastrophe, the periodical return of an extraterrestrial threat whose power moved mountains, reduced magnificent cities of old to rubble, and left the most powerful emperors trembling in fear. Comets in the Horns of Moses is a groundbreaking work that sheds light on our dark ages to reveal a timely warning to humanity. The clock is running down on our civilization. Comets in the Horns of Moses, available now for purchase from all Amazon websites. clock is running down on our civilization. I think we've, for the past few weeks, we've adequately demonstrated that there's something to that idea. But I have a question here from a listener for ARC. Um, and the question is, why do you think the promising experiments with phenomena that are called paranormal were so harshly suppressed? For example, William Crookes and Daniel Douglas Holmes. Uh, well, probably because uh, of the conservatives, or conservative, you know, science is conservative. So it was uh, always the case. And uh, and uh, I don't think uh, nowadays it's much different than it was. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> but, well, of course, there is also nowadays we have this. Uh, military applications, 
mm. which uh, were absent during, say, 100 years ago, right? Yeah. So uh, this add uh, to to the conservatives of science. I mean, you don't have to look for, you know, uh, for instance, at the, at the normal university, mm-hmm. uh, where the, uh, you you should not uh, suspect that there is something, you know, uh, some military or whatever involved it. But if you if you are too original, uh, uh, you will be not liked. You know, you have to find a different place. So. It's a question of originality, you know. What do you mean you will not be liked? Well, they will say you are strange, you do not belong to, to us, you are not like us, so please find another place. We are serious scientists and we, uh, you know, we do what other scientists do, don't try to be too original. So who decides what scientists do, though? Scientists themselves? I mean, back then, 120 right. years ago, 130 years ago, uh, or around that time, I mean, even then, like you said, you didn't have necessarily such a vested interest in terms of military and everything, but even then, um, this uh, investigation into the paranormal was people who, who did it were... were Harshly suppressed. Yeah, but this this is a normal. If you have a flock, you know, and one bird is uh, uh, different from the other bird, you know, and the other bird will peak or you mm-hmm. know. Well, like on like that the, on that topic, I mean, I can understand the conservative of science in that respect because I mean, there was a lot of chicanery going on at that time. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the 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 couple of people who may have had something um, actually true going on. Um, it was really hard for for anyone to actually research that because there was just so much chicanery going on. There were so many people who were scamming that it was really easy for a scientist to be like, it's all a scam. It's all a fraud. You know, yeah. I mean, uh, Houdini went around sort of like, you know, debunking a lot yeah. of people, kind of like he was an original kind of Amazing Randy type character. And, um, you know, just proving that they were frauds or at least that, that their effects could be gotten via fraudulent means, which kind of made it really hard for scientists to to look at it. And those who did, yeah, they got suppressed and all, but you can almost understand it from a certain perspective because even when you look at the evidence, I mean, it's it's never really super conclusive. It's mm-hmm. always, you know, I mean, somebody tipping a table, it, it really is problematic, you know? And I mean, like, uh, what was it? Ed Casey said, a dead Presbyterian is a dead Presbyterian. Yeah, these people are, cha- maybe they're channeling dead people, maybe they're not, maybe it's their subconscious, who knows? Mm-hmm. But it was it was difficult to find somebody who had a connection to any kind of real source of information, mm-hmm. even among, you know, the people who were not being mm-hmm. basically scammers. You mm-hmm. know? So, I mean, it was, it was very difficult to reproduce experimentally. I, I, I think there are <clears throat> maybe two other reasons to explain the attitude of... Uh, mainstream science towards paranormal. The first one is the ideology, and uh, modern science seems to be fundamentally based on the materialistic, mechanistic, causalistic, deterministic paradigm. Mm -hmm. And paranormal address concepts like conscience, which is almost the the antipodes of the atomistic vision of of the universe held by most mainstream scientists. And the other problem is the replicability. Mm -hmm. Science is based 
on the fact that if the theory is true, when you apply it through experiment, you can replicate the result of the experimental protocol. The problem is, and maybe Aki can explain better than me with a quantum mechanic shows that there might be interaction between the observer and the observed phenomenon. And maybe in paranormal um, um, activity, those uh, correlation between the observer and the observed phenomenon are more tangible or more perceivable than in uh, other more uh, phenomena, yeah, and I think experiments. I'll... What do you think, Argy? Uh, what you said about this uh, lack of repeatability is uh, very important because uh, uh, to make real progress with understanding the paranormal, we would have to change completely the paradigm of science. And uh, uh, you mentioned quantum theory. I think we have to go beyond quantum theory. Quantum theory is not enough. Quantum theory is uh, also uh, based on algorithms, and you can repeat quantum experiments. Of course, you cannot predict single events, but it becomes a postulate now. Okay, so, okay, you cannot repeat single events, but you can uh, uh, make a series of experiments and take averages and so on. With paranormal, it is so that this is not working. If you take uh, averages, the phenomenon disappears, you see. Mm. So you have to have a, you have to find new ways of researching these kinds of phenomena mm. and uh, uh, there is not no yet uh, a, a method of doing it. Of mm. course, if more people, more scientists would be working on it, this method would have been found already. Mm-hmm. But because there are so few and they are conservative, you know, and there is this inertia, we will probably uh, we will have to wait another hundred or five hundred years before it happens, unless there is some breakthrough. You know, who knows? Uh, there are bright scientists well, and, uh, and and positivism as well. The, our own way of thinking, our all way of thinking, is based on the fact that uh, is something is proven to be true, it's true, but if there's no proof it exists, it doesn't exist. But Oh, stop it about <laughs> these positivities. I mean, so many scientists are religious. Of course. And you are of course. speaking about positivities. I mean, <laughs> but that's what they claim, but and they, they, and they used to discard uh, paranormal uh, events. But proof of absence of proof is of proof is. of the absence. Ernest Gellner kind of like, I was about to say pretty much a little bit on that, on that topic, was that Ernest Gellner kind of came out and said, okay, here's the problem with, with the paranormal in science, and that science at its core philosophy is that there's no such thing as a priori knowledge. You, know, that you can't have you can't have God as a source of knowledge, and that was you know uh, science built its whole base when it you know took on like the Catholic Church with that whole Darwinism stuff and 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 all that stuff of getting getting ousting the religions so that they could you know ascend to, to dominance was all about no God cannot come in and inspire you. There cannot be any you know. There cannot be any a priori source, and they kind of they kind of painted themselves in the corner a bit from that philosophically and ideologically, and uh, I don't think that science couldn't study paranormal, but the way it is right now with the ideology that it has, I don't think that it really can. It can't that you can't really remain a science and then start talking about whether or not God can really talk to people or spirits or whatever or a cosmic mind or something like that. You, 
science it can't go there because it spent so much time bashing the hell out of out of the people who were representing that particular ideology. Now they feel like, well, <laughs> we can't turn around and do it. They did. So they kind of have this investment, this emotional investment and and this whole fixed repeatability. Every per, even the lowest scientist has to be able to go into a lab, push the right number of the same number of buttons and get the exact same effect. If I can't re- reproduce the experiment, then we have to discredit it. And and there is a certain logic to the way that it's kind of the scientific method. There's a logic to the way that they do things, and it works for a lot of stuff. But I think still there is uh, some hope because I know there are some uh, very bright scientists with very good original ideas uh, going in this direction. The problem is that they are separated one from each other. And uh, so there is no real uh, group and there is no funding. Mm -hmm. They do it as a hobby mainly because they have to, you know, feed their families and so on. But there are good ideas going in the right direction. So uh, because once in a while things happen randomly and we have this butterfly effect, uh, I do not exclude that in near future a breakthrough in this direction can be made. Yeah. Um, just a, a note to our listeners, if anybody has any questions, you can also call in uh, any questions for Ark or Pierre or Jason or Neil or me or anybody. You should definitely call in. You should call in. And we'll love with, you with any, with any of your questions. Um, so Ark, on the religion and science thing, does that mean that a scientist who is religious uh, has some kind of a shouldn't he have some kind of he or she have some kind of a uh, a problem? Uh, I think uh, scientists uh, they really uh, separate these two things. I mean, uh, they go to the church and uh, uh, pray, uh, you know, and on the other hand, they go to their labs and they forget about everything uh, else and uh, they do what they do. So there's, I mean, it, se- it seems I mean, to me that, that's a, that there's some kind of a schism in their mind, a split in terms of surely if you're a real scientist, you couldn't be happy with believing in God as a... I don't think that believing itself is uh, something bad because it. I repeat it again and again. It doesn't matter where you are getting insp- your inspiration from. You can get it from the Bible or from Torah or from Kabbalah or I don't know, from uh, whatever, right? Uh, what counts are the results. And quite often happen, for instance, Newton was producing great things, but he was interested mainly in alchemy. And the great things in science came as a as a kind of a... Uh, science was a hobby for him, and alchemy was a mm. full-time job, you know, and yeah. counting uh, how big would have to be the Jerusalem to 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 be able to 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 take all the souls in the uh, uh, last judgment day, you know, so so. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, here's the. Um, I'm sorry, I just went right out of my head. <laughs> like the second time. Well, <clears throat> there's one one area of science that we probably cannot wait 
100 or 500 years for a breakthrough. And that's surely a good working knowledge of the space sciences. I mean, we're still with the paradigm of comets being dirty snowballs. We've got large bodies actually impacting the planet quite regularly now. One notorious one in February that blew up over Russia. And what I've been noticing is a flood of... Did you say meteorite <laughs> over Russia? Russia? That's the magic word. seems to have happened is as soon as a bunch of researchers, scientists, whoever heard that noise, they they wrote up some, some applications for grants and there are some wild ideas going on out there about landing on asteroids, about how we could deflect asteroids by if we see it far enough in advance, we can tug it gravitationally. In fact, if there's one that's a serious threat and it's coming very close, what we can do is we can tug it into an orbit around the moon. Yeah. I mean, do these people, uh, people coming up with these ideas, uh, have they no understanding of what they're dealing with here? Yeah. They're supposed to be the people who know. Yeah, I, I those, think, peri- those, th- those papers were right out of movies. That was like the, the entire plot of Armageddon. Well, that was our research material. <clears throat> James McKinney uh, describes how he thinks NASA works with these three concentric circles. And on the insiders, the very insiders, the very top, they have access to data, and they know partly the truth. And they filter out to the average scientists in NASA what they are allowed to know. And those scientists, bottom NASA scientists, are the second ring. And the third ring are the scientists that work in medias and that feed the population with uh, what the population is supposed to know and to ignore. This being said, this dirty snowball um, um, model has been so defended by NASA and other mainstream scientists because I think the asteroid threat is a sore spot for the elites because it's a real threat. Uh, there's been uh, five documented major extinction cycles in the history of the planet. There's been many more minor ones. All the current signs point towards an increase in uh, asteroid activity, and all the actual data, observation data, empiric, show that those bodies are not dirty snowballs. There's, okay, just two examples. First example, Comet Lovejoy was observed reaching the uh, sun, going through the sun atmosphere, the corona, 6 million degrees Kelvin. And one hour later, it went out of the an atmosphere, it was still there. Hmm. Allegedly, it's a ball of snow. It was a snowball champ in hell, and it did pretty well, huh? And the second example is Temple. They send a, a space probe to take picture, very close picture of Temple. Yeah. And Temple had no ice, no snow. Temple was a 
dark piece of rock. It looks like an asteroid. So these are asteroids. All those bodies are asteroids, and when they light up because of plasma discharges, i.e. Mm -hmm. electric model of the universe, they, they get bright, and uh, we call them comets. But all those bodies are threats because it's not that it's snowball. When they enter the Earth's atmosphere, they would not melt, and will happen what happened in Tunguska, mm -hmm. in Russia, or worse, they might directly impact the surface of the planet. Yeah, it's really terrible because science today has run up against a roadblock or all, all of the scientists that could be researching this, uh, this particular idea of cyclical cosmic catastrophe via space rocks. Um, I mean, they're not allowed, as Pierre just mentioned, to kind of go there and to explain and to try and understand uh, the reality of the threat because essentially NASA, in this case, puts up a wall and maintains a paradigm and no one is allowed to refute it or to question it and people that do are attacked and ridiculed. And this isn't just some like nice discovery that might you know, help humanity. We're talking about something here that is a dire threat to the entire population and all life on the planet and still they're doing the same stonewalling of, of, of people who want to push through and come up with new paradigms. And it's not even a new paradigm, for God's sakes. It's just the idea that there are rocks. You know, it, I mean, it's been, yeah, it's in all the history books. Read the Comets and the Horns of Moses uh, that we just, uh, you just heard an advertisement for. It's correlated with the uh, global cooling. Maybe in another show we, we can develop how uh, higher cometary activity and global cooling are correlated. But those two factors, which are hidden by mainstream uh, science and mainstream medias who talk about man-made global warming and no increased asteroid activity and dirty snowball model, they hide the fact that humanity is on the verge of very major threat and uh, for not losing their power over people for the reason we mentioned before. And at the same time, it means in order to keep their power spread those lies and they expose the old world population to this major threat because there might be solutions but to find solutions first you have to acknowledge the problem and the yeah. problem is systematically hidden well I mean think about it in a certain sense it's the if I can't have it no one can mentality of the psychopath in this case because mm -hmm. they basically what the truth of cyclic cosmic catastrophe means is that it doesn't matter if you're a king it doesn't matter who you are. At any point in history, your whole civilization can go right down the tubes and there's not much you can do about it. Earthquakes, some sort of temporary ice, whatever. All these different things can happen and there's no way you can do anything. What that would instruct societies all over the world and humanity as a whole is basically that you have to lift up every single part of society, every unit, every person – you have to put them on equal footing and give them each an equal chance because if something like this happens, you have to make sure of the continuation of the species and the continuation of the spirit of humanity, right? Mm -hmm. But if you want to control everything, you, it's kind of this whole like, well, if the comets come and destroy everybody, I'm going to make sure that we all go mm -hmm. because if I can't rule, then no one can. Instead mm -hmm. of lifting everybody up and saying everybody has access to all of the knowledge of humanity, mm -hmm. there are no secrets, there's no need for it mm -hmm. because at any point in history, half the entire race could just like, you know, die. 
and it has to go on, and we have to not be put back into a Stone Age type of situation where we have a whole bunch of people who don't have access to everything that's come before them. Mm. That would create that kind of situation. Eventually, humanity would be like, hold, hold on, holy shit, what, what do you mean, like 90% of us could die at any point? Mm-hmm. And then they're going to say, like, well, then screw this. There's no reason to have all of this you know, poverty, all of this systems, all of this hierarchies. Because there's no point, because the hierarchy gets to- toppled, and then where are we? We're put right back to what happened at the fall of the Roman Empire, which is basically that they lost the ability to even make basic pottery mm-hmm. for hundreds of years. They lost all the writing, and it wasn't for like 300 years or something like that. Yeah, yeah it might even be worse, because I think those elite people think they have it, they know what is going to happen, and they're getting ready. They dug this... Uh, so-called seed bank in Svalbard and uh, other facilities, several uh, big underground facilities, and they think they will survive it. But they might not have the whole banana. And uh, cometary impact is one factor. Global cooling is another factor. But you have to factor in also the massive weather disruptions, Mm -hmm. the increased earthquake activity, volcanic activity. So it's all global systemic um, change. Yeah. that we're facing and uh, factoring on the one factor won't help you to go through it. Yeah, and I think that another factor in terms of um, real science or real discoveries or real knowledge not uh, getting out to the population to, the, and to, to informing the people about what's really going on in any area really, but specifically in the area of cosmic catastrophes and stuff is that... Um, a lot of scientists, I would say, theorizing, I would say that a lot of them are only too willing, only too happy, or at least marginally happy or content to believe the established idea, the establishment idea, or that we, that that, that human beings are not about to be destroyed, that that life on the planet is not cyclically destroyed, um, because that. From a, from a personal perspective of any individual, that's not a very nice idea to entertain. And I mean, uh, I mean, if you put up a lot of grant money for any scientist to go and uh, start researching for the truth about the fact that that is what happens, that people are <laughs> the planet does go through cyclical catastrophes. I mean, you might not find quite an awful lot of them interested because of their own personal investment in. Well, you're asking me to investigate the idea that I'm going to be destroyed at any moment, and you know, me and the rest of the planet. It's not a very nice uh, area to research and uh, I think it ties into also the, 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 the mention of paranormal research you know there's a lot of subjectivity obviously just by human nature there's a lot of subjectivity in, in, in scientific research just because of the, the particular scientists doing it and uh, for example a paranormal activity uh, they would be willing very people, scientists would be only too eager to or only too happy to to dismiss the idea of paranormal activity because they themselves, first of all, do not experience it. And the other idea of it not being repeatable, it can be repeatable with one person perhaps. One person can produce some kind of you know, uh, paranormal uh, abilities, but if you can't replicate it across the large number of the population, well then that's just an anomaly, so it's not really worthy of research, it would be the idea as well. You know? Oh, it's replicable if you manage to control all the factors involved in the experiment mm. and there are probably many hidden variables in some case in classical mechanics 
it doesn't have an influence. The engine works always the same, mm -hmm. but for other for some other phenomenon, those hidden variables may play a major role. And we tend to idealize the scientists. You know, the scientist has only one thing in mind: is this quest for truth. Mm -hmm. The scientist, objectively, they are human beings, like mm -hmm. uh, like all of us, with their prejudice, with their educational background, with their family troubles, with their traumas, with their memories, with their beliefs, with their hope. And like all of us, they're facing this uh, choice between uncomfortable truth and uh, some comforting uh, lies mm -hmm. or beliefs. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they, ch they choose truth and sometimes they choose comfort, grant, statues, publication, papers, and a bright future or the illusion of a bright future. Yeah. So, um, obviously, I suppose what we're talking about here is that um, not only are scientific breakthroughs, discoveries rare, but the caliber or the quality of any particular scientist is a factor as well in terms of that person's own inner nature and ability to imagine and to think outside the box, a desire to think outside the box and to pursue that. I mean, surely a lot of re scientific research art comes ultimately from an idea of a particular person and it's not uh, do you know what I mean it's not um, it's not something that 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 would be self-evident or that anybody on the planet any scientist on the planet could share one particular scientist may be required because of who he is or she is to come up with an idea that that they follow do you, do you agree with that or I mean well, from my experience, looking at all my colleagues, truth is never the goal. The goal is to produce papers. That's the only thing. I mean, forget about truth. I mean, are you learning about searching for truth during your university studies? Do you have any education? Yes, you had perhaps some little bit philosophy. But uh, what about scientific ethics? Mm. Is it being taught at the university? Well, no. I don't think so. What I mean, uh, for instance, if you want to be a doctor, right? You have to go. You have to go through 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 the course of ethics. I mean, it doesn't matter what happens after that. You know, to what you learn it. Okay, you learn it uh, this and that and that and that, right? But afterwards, you forget about it. Oh, um, it's not going to work, right? Uh, the same, I mean, uh, for instance, if you are a priest, you are supposed to keep your confessions, right? But for scientists, I mean, are you supposed to really look for truth? No. That's the main thing you have to learn. Technique, you know, uh, then you have to learn how to produce papers. And then you have practice, and then you have to learn how to produce them quick. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, a lot of that, you know, ties into that comparison that I always make with, you know, the Catholic Church and science, which is that obviously, uh, from filtered down from, you know, scientists who write papers and then sort of scientific writers who write books for the layman to like the media and how science has allowed itself and encouraged itself to be portrayed as a bunch of very noble men searching for truth, which is part of their propaganda campaign, 
um, that ultimately that's that's not what it's about. That's that's what that's what we think as lay people that they're about. That's what they've been telling us. But in the end, they're doing it for the same reason that the CEO runs a corporation and the same reason that mm-hmm. people do these things. It's a job, and the people who want to get at the top of the food chain in the in academia, they climb the the so-called academic corporate ladder the same way that a CEO does and stuff like that. And obviously, they want to present themselves as kind of like um, pathfinders and explorers, but for the most part, they're not. You know, they're not out. They're for serving that. a master who has a goal and agenda. Yeah, and and, it, the and, job. and for the most part, it's the, the master is money. They they serve mm-hmm. no master but their ambition type of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what you see in every area of of life and society. There's there's another belief we hold concerning scientists that spend their time. Maybe not looking for truth, but at least they spend their time making experiments, writing theories. They spend time uh, with the microscope and the test tubes and the equations. And actually, um, during the last decades, at least most of the time spent by scientists is writing proposals for grants, grants application, intermediate reports, final reports. All the papers relating to compliance with internal policies of the lab, those ISO norms, those uh, bureaucratic, all those bureaucratic administrative paperwork, and the actual time spent by scientists doing real science is less and less and less. There is another factor, a little little bit, which adds to that, namely uh, when you apply for a grant, you have to write what you will do during next two years, right? Then suppose after uh, uh, one week you find that what you uh, uh, were looking for is stupid and you have to change it, right? But you cannot say it because you already have a grant, right? So you have continue doing something that you already know it's useless, it goes in the wrong direction, you know, that's how it works. And a lot of discoveries... Maybe most major discoveries were made in a non-deterministic way. The discoverer didn't know what he was going to discover. Sometimes it was due to accident or random chance, like penicillin or other major discoveries. Yeah. Uh, a listener who <coughs> who is engaged in scientific research uh, has just commented that um, uh, she remembers how not long ago the head of the research of a fellow student uh, told me in an excited way that we could get two or more papers out of this research. And when she answered her that it's not important, the the person just looked at her as though she was insane, you know. <clears throat> so, but on the topic of truth, do you think? I mean, you're you're suggesting, Ark, that truth should be a foundational part of scientific research when people are in school and they should be taught that truth is the goal? Well, it should be, but I don't think it's going to be. Truth is a philosophical complexity. It absolutely is. That's what scientist once said. It absolutely is, but... Um, it, it, it's also something that something that becomes self-evident after a while, we've been discussing climate science and then astronomy. I mean, there are things that for us are self-evident because 
there are real scientists. Real, I mean, there there are scientists who really did pursue research that is apparently more objective, more accurate. I.e., they were looking for the truth of either comet behavior or the the the, the factors of climate change. So it it's um it's it's not as how do you say? There is, there is, there are, there is science there for people to discover. Um, that is, that is, that is correct. That is true. Yeah, there is. A, I see what you mean, and um, <clears throat> it's difficult for the layman because when you start researching about a topic, we find a lot of papers. And usually you would have 90%, 95% of the papers that support the mainstream ideas, the dominating paradigm. But you have a small percentage of scientists that will produce papers. Sometimes they will, if they're lucky enough, they will get published or they will write their own book. And uh, in, those, um, in this small number of papers, you're going to find nuggets of truth. There are scientists, there are Thanks God, there are a few. I don't know. Maybe it's not appropriate word for this discussion about science. But fortunately, there are a few a minority of scientists who made this choice, this brave choice, of stating what they observed, that defended the truth, and uh, maybe sometimes they were aware of it, sometimes not. But when by doing that, they sacrificed their career, and yeah. it's a noble act. Even when they knew it was not what their peers or colleagues or their funders want to hear. Yeah. It's rare, but it happens. No, it's not so that they sacrifice their careers. They publish things and uh, they are being ignored. Uh, so that's usually what happens, you see? You see, if, if they're smart, they don't try to get published in a big thing like, you know, science or nature. You see, that's the that's the problem with like this Benvenista guy. He should have realized what he had found and he should have published it in the most obscure journal possible because once it had gotten out into nature, they had to destroy him or else... No, know. but this is a well-known truth that if you have something original, you should not try to publish in one of the uh, major journals, you see, because uh, first what will happen, uh, most probably, your idea, will, uh, your paper will be rejected and your idea will be stolen. Yeah, and uh, Benveni's case is interesting because it's a glitch in the system. Benveni's paper should have never been published in Nature. The peer reviewers didn't find any flaw, but the peer reviewers were not part of this insider ring described by James McKinney. They just evaluated objectively the science in the paper. It was good, so it was published. And then a few days later, the very top boss of Nature started to intervene and, that's and put pressure on Benvenis because it should have never been published according to the hidden policies of those papers. And that's why he Jonas. got you know, crushed in a certain sense. And that's why a lot of these yes. scientists do get crushed because they're a little too ambitious. They, they, they don't know that, 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 that what they're saying is dangerous. And, you know, I mean, that sucks, but that's what happens. And it's understandable from a certain perspective. But what I wanted to say on this whole, this whole other topic, because I always come back to this whole science is a religion, man. I mean, when people see, like, scandals in the Catholic Church or any sort of religion, they see, you know, sex scandals and money scandals, and they say, what's wrong with these people? Aren't you supposed to be serving God? 
And then you see the same kind of stuff in science. You say, what's wrong with you people? Aren't you supposed to be looking for truth? And the answer is no. I think uh, one of the mistakes, quote-unquote, of uh, Ben Venice is that he didn't measure, he didn't perceive all the consequences of his discovery because he only published the results of this correlation between quantity of B venom and uh, blood uh, in uh, blood reaction. He didn't realize that uh, actually he found a empirical proof of some kind of uh, water memory or hidden uh, important and hidden phenomenon that science hadn't grasped yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think... It, uh, he's not the one who coined the, the term uh, memory of water. It's later on that the media started to spin and twist and uh, uh, extrapolate from his finding that was purely scientific. Yeah, and obviously, apart from, as we've mentioned, the, <clears throat> the essential control that's exerted over or exercised over, over scientific research via essentially uh, through the peer review process, which is a bit of a, a joke these days in terms of it being, uh, you know, really, you know, uh, encouraging uh, proper scientific research in diverse fields. It's a joke. Yes. It's a joke. Um, I mean, they even, uh, a lot of people are encouraged and grants are given, scientists are encouraged and grants are given to scientists for, for very, very, not very useful experiments. Studying let's say. the speed of the flow of ketchup. Studying the speed of the flow of ketchup and stuff. It seems to be thousand dollars. Yeah, that's actually one that was yeah, uh, that was funded, and it's um, it seems to be another way to control, uh, or it's either a way to control, it's either conscious or it's maybe it's not conscious. Maybe it's just a sign of the, the degradation of society in general, as we see all around us, and it's spread that uh, science isn't um, immune to that. Uh, but there are an awful, an awful lot, a large number of very crappy, useless experiments that are being funded that serve, seem to serve no real purpose whatsoever, you know? And it serves very well to just suck up the funding money and to, you know, to fill journals and stuff. And um, Was that a real study? Yeah, well, no. The speed of ketchup. Yeah, I mean, I saw it. It was, it was years ago. I think it was on, like, um, was it on 2020 or some sort of news expose about, you know, science and the different experiments that got funded. And one of them was some guy had got something like fifty thousand dollars to study the speed of ketchup down an incline. Um, it really was no joke. He was very serious about it. Fluid dynamics or some sort of thing that he claimed, but basically it was the speed of ketchup. Yeah. So this this um put putting money into trivial areas of research. I think it has this effect. I remember the effect um, it had on me when it came time to deciding what subject I would study later on in school. It was a shame because I, I did have a keen interest in the sciences early on. And then I seem, I think I lost it. And I think looking back, that there's an impression that comes through that more or less everything that is to be discovered has been discovered. The world is known. We, we more or less have everything down. And that's why now there's nothing left to do but put money into funding the speed of ketchup because we're kind of, the world is more or less known and we just have to fine-tune a few little things here and there. But that couldn't, that's, that's pretty far. That's not an, an, obje an objective 
view of the world at all. There are still many, many things to discover. Would you agree, Ark? Well, I don't know. I mean, where did you learn that everything? I mean, really somebody told it to you that everything no. has been discovered? No, no one told me, but this is, this is, I think, the impression that I received, mm-hmm. you know, from maybe it's the way the science is taught to children. There's, oh, there's, oh, no, yeah. there's no wonder oh, yeah. in this. Oh, yeah. There's no wonder. This is what happens when you do this. It leads to this. Um, they, they, there's no comparison of well, you, you're left with the impression that it's all facts. Oh yeah, there are there are many scientists who would say that if you teach children that they should be open to the new, you are spoiling them. You should uh, uh, teach them respect for science. And how you can teach them respect if you say that there are so many things that scientists have no answer for? So they would fight, you know. Oh no, you should never, you should teach children science like religion. You believe this, this is, this is how it works. Look how wonderful is science. We know everything. We can explain every phenomenon, become a scientist. And the, <laughs> yeah, and uh, I agree with what um, Neil just said. If you, when you start getting interested in a scientific field, topic like cosmology, for example, you find all those papers and all those theories with all those complicated words and all those theories explaining everything and with this big bangs and antimatter and black matter and gravity and and formation of stars and explosion of stars and supernova and origin of comets, everything is perfectly, quote-unquote, explained. It's only when you start digging that you see that a lot of pieces of the puzzles are missing, that most of the pieces of the puzzle that are presented do not fit together, that, uh, yeah, there's a lot of inconsistencies, and uh, in conclusion, there is a lot, a lot to be discovered, and there is a lot of the current belief being held that have to be uh, trashed out. I, I would like to add to this from my experience, because... <clears throat> <clears throat> there is also this phenomenon, okay? You go through the regular studies and you essentially, you, you come out with the belief that everything uh, uh, is known, essentially, right? And uh, there is still so much to to learn, you know, in front of you. Oh my God, I know only so little, right? How, how can I discover something when I have to read all this hundreds of papers and books and so on. But then at some point, if you are lucky, you start going to conferences or you meet scientists, real scientists who come to, some, to, to, to your place to visit and you start to talk to them privately. And then you see uh, when you talk in private, uh, you ask questions, but I don't understand this. Well, no one understands. Neither do I. Neither <laughs> do I. Yeah. Okay. And when you when you are able to talk to these top experts, only then they will tell you privately what you will not find in their papers mm. and what, what you will not find in their monographs. But, but the truth isn't known completely. That they'll say that privately, but not 
Um, well, they are not hiding it. They are not uh, uh, that they are hiding it. They are happy to share with you. Yes. Oh, you asked. So I will tell you, oh, mm. this is a, a, a terra incognita completely. This is undiscovered. Mm. Here, here are the questions, okay? Okay, if you are lucky, you get one of these problems and you make uh, your PhD, right? Mm -hmm. On this. Uh, but. Uh, well, yeah. one thing that's like important to understand is there's a big. There's such a huge gap between scientific papers and scientific textbooks that are in a college and scientific textbooks that are in a high school and scientific textbooks that are in like an elementary school. Uh, a lot of times those are actually like written by people who are not really scientists in the true sense of the word. Mm. It's more like they got a PhD in like education or, you know, a PhD in some sort of administration. Um, they're not really scientists, but because they are there and they're willing to do it, they get to write the textbook and they choose whatever it is that they believe or think. And uh, Joss Whedon, who uh, created Buffy the Vampire Slayer and uh, Firefly and all that stuff, he has, a, he has a word called phlebotanum that he created, or maybe he didn't, but I don't know. Uh, and he refers to it as the magical, mystical explanation for why things work in a television program about like mystical stuff like, oh, he cast a magic spell type of thing, and that's why it worked. And a lot of scientific textbooks are filled with scientific phlebotanum which are basically like they give you a technical explanation that doesn't actually really explain anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, I'm, I, I refuse to believe in evolution because I still don't see how it could have worked because they, you know, they give you all this different thing and it sounds so reasonable until you say, yes, but how did that happen between two amino acids in a pool of sludge type of thing? And mm -hmm. they're saying, well, it was, you know, some sort of random chance. And it I'm must like, have happened that way. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I'm like, in order for life to evolve, the life had to get there somewhere. How did that happen? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I don't imagine two rocks sort of like, you know, banging together and suddenly becoming alive and then they can evolve. Sure. Yeah. So, so much of science is, is phlebotanum. It's just a magical, mystical explanation yeah, but then when you start treating original papers, you will find scientists who ask this question, who research this problem, but this is fringe. fringe. It's still science, but it's fringe science. It's not mainstream, right? Yeah. And they produce papers, okay, sometimes even in top journals, but they are being ignored, mm -hmm. right? Okay. So a lot of, a lot of um, the unknown in science is fringe, uh, as Nal was saying, the impression that is given, for whatever reason, the impression particularly children come away with, and one of our listeners has just said that uh, that was definitely also the feeling he got, that almost everything was discovered and there was not really any big mysteries anymore because human beings have discovered almost everything. Um, <clears throat> obviously, the idea that doesn't coincide or doesn't jive with the idea of telling children who are budding scientists uh, it, does, it doesn't uh, it doesn't fit with telling them that they should be looking for the truth because if you tell someone that part of science is or a major part of science is to discover the truth if you know everything there is no truth to discover uh, when I was uh, teaching students uh, I was teaching uh, with the idea to show all them all the open questions mm. And uh, they were usually very bright, and uh, they found their jobs uh, afterwards. They made their PhD. But, however, my uh, lectures were so popular that I got three times in a row uh, the reward, students' reward for the best teacher, 
Uh, after that, uh, I was uh, the reward uh, for, was for, uh, for students were forbidden to give the rewards mm. with the department because uh, you were getting too many. Right, because oh. I was getting too many, and I was reminded that perhaps I should change your teaching so my teaching so that it is more like. Uh, ordinary teaching because otherwise I am attracting too many students and there are not much left for others. <laughs> so, the, serious, right? so the truth is is still appealing then uh, to students and to you. I mean, if, if they thought you were the most popular because you were essentially oh, they loved them, me, telling them the unknowns that they have yeah, to discover. They have something to discover. They loved me and they and they make their careers later on. But then, okay, so they made their PhD, they found uh, uh, their jobs, but then they went into the normal routine and their places, and they've forgotten everything about being open-minded. So it wasn't continued on in further research? No. Well, that's pretty grim on the one hand, but it also suggests that, you know, people do still have an interest and a love for the truth. Um, It's just being... Suppressed. I think people as a whole actually today. do. I think that the world does kind of illustrate that, and that, uh, like I said the other the other day, you know, all of the efforts to to suppress and distract people are simply for the fact that if they relented for one second, people would just basically be like, "Hey, wait a minute, this is uh, this is a great big ball of shit." Yeah. So they have to keep up the, they have the to pressure. Keep the pressure on, you know. Yeah. Well, maybe one day they'll overstretch themselves, and um, something will break out. Eventually, people will get tired of, of the way things are. Yeah. You know, I mean, they'll, they'll get like sensory overload. You know, like mm-hmm. watching too much TV in a day. There's a point at which you like you really just want to like you know clean the house or something mm-hmm. because you're tired of it. Yeah. And, uh, and that's going to happen to people pretty soon, I think. Yeah, and maybe it'll be demonstrated to them by by Mother Nature. Maybe that'll be the cat the catalyst. You know, like we're I think so. About the... I think for all for all the terror that may or may not come with it, it could be the catalyst that literally unleashes a wave of, of curiosity that mm-hmm. we have. Mm. But that's pent up inside yeah. us. It's been suppressed. Well, there's a choice, I suppose, <clears throat> on the conscious or unconscious level. Uh, and with this, uh, as you call it, sensory overload, either you wake up or you disintegrate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there may be something coming down the pipeline. It seems like things are happening on the planet right now. So maybe our purported or theorized breakout moment in terms of the truth and people waking up a little bit maybe not too far off in the in the future. Uh, we can only hope it may not be pleasant, but uh, if it does happen, you can bet we'll be reporting it here on Sot Talk Radio. Uh, I think we're going to leave it there for this week. Uh, thanks for all of our listeners for listening in and your comments. Thank you to Arky for his valuable insights. Thank you, Arky. And to Pierre. And of course to Jason and to Niall. Good night, everyone. And we'll see you all next week. Well, see you. We'll imagine you all next week. <laughs>